Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. When you need help, when something's wrong, you need to ask. There is somebody there who can help you. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues, as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest for the Women's Leadership Network. Our guest today is Carol Robles Roman, a 1989 graduate of NYU Law and the president and CEO of Legal Momentum, which is the oldest women's civil rights organization in the United States. I am so excited to have you here today, Carol, to discuss the topic of power, getting it, using it, keeping it. I'm really excited. So, you know, I think of your class as being the class of mischief makers, you in particular. I, you, I don't really want to come right out and call you out as a troublemaker, but you uh, have always been good at speaking truth to power and taking your power. So because this podcast is oriented around women, I like to start off with this question. What was your experience as a student and particularly as a woman? Troublemaker. I mean, I don't know. Um you know, yeah, a good troublemaker. A good of course. troublemaker. No, no, no. It was, it was. Um, those were exciting times, and NYU was um, a real incubator for great ideas and great personalities. So there was um, really great work going on through the Review of Law and Social Change. If you recall, this is eighty-eight, eighty-nine, and we had started really creating. Uh, intersectionality research around race and gender, which really was not being done. It started at Yale. There was some work happening um, at Mani Matsuda in Hawaii. And we brought the conference, we brought the idea of having a colloquium to to really bring all these scholars together and to write papers and, and issues of, of first impression. And we got the funding and the colloquium was set to go. And our new dean decided that it was too much of a, of a networking conference and <laughs> canceled it in, in short order. So that started an incredible hue and cry and it was in the school paper and people were upset and alumni were getting involved. And so we really saw, I saw for the first time, right? I'm a, I'm a kid, right? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a law student. You were but a 1L, 2L? I was, a, I was a 3L. And I was able to see firsthand <laughs> that, first of all, when you have right on your side, right? That counts for a lot. And we were able to really galvanize a lot of power around the issue of women of color in the law, number one. Equity, thing was already decided and, and you know, we had already invited people, et cetera. Um, and what ends up happening is fast forward, it was approved. We had an incredible conference and it was a real national gathering. And so then the next thing I know, I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is really great. And I learned something. I, I use all my lawyering skills that I learned as a 1L <laughs> and everything that I learned in contracts. Um, and then I had sort of this persona of 
uh, diversity leader, uh, somebody who'll stand up to the administration, someone who can galvanize alumni. I didn't do it by myself, and I'm not even going to pretend that I did, but somehow uh, that brand kind of got out there, and it ended up happening where a series of incidents were happening, really at a lot of different law schools, but because it was NYU, they were really taking prominence. People were being um, a little bit evil and uh, there was one issue in particular that happened. We had one student where she had uh, a picture of Jesse Jackson, who was running for president at the time, right? A wonderful civil rights leader, African-American. Someone had taken the poster down from her room and ripped it up. Mm-hmm. So she took it, and she she's a Latina, or she was a board member of, of LALSA, and she taped it back up, and very defiantly, she put it back up in her room in Mercer. Somebody set her door on fire. I remember this. I remember this? And so, you know, we... That doesn't sound like a little bit evil, Carol. Well, it sounds like a lot it evil. Sounded, it sounded very evil to us, too. And when nobody was brought up on charges, when we didn't see that a real investigation had occurred, um, we were told that it had been a really nasty prank. Um, you know, we had all studied really hard in law school, and we said, no, it's called arson. <laughs> you know? yeah. it's, not called, it's not called a prank. We we really made a big deal of it, and then there were a series of other things, not as severe as that. And so the idea was struck that we would identify four student leaders, and we would uh, we would hold one of the first sit-ins in the country, and we would start it at NYU. And I said, okay, who are those four leaders going to be? And so I looked around the room, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, why is everybody looking at me? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it was some of the women of color and the law you know, brand had come up to bite me back. And at mm-hmm. that point, I'm already a 3L. I've got my great corporate job. Um, I'm, you know, I got one foot in the Barbary course, you know, <laughs> ready to start studying for the bar. Um, and and Londell McMillan, who was a 2L at the time, who's now probably one of the most successful entertainment lawyers uh, in the country, if not the world, with a roster of, of clients, uh, sat me down and said, if not you, who? You know, it's going to be me. It's going to be me. It's going to be you. It's going to be John Quinones and and one other 1L. And we're just going to hold hands and we're going to create the strategy and we're going to have a sit in and we are then going to then take over the dean's office. And I'm thinking, (laughs) what movie script did this come from? And they they sold me on it. And I said, okay, let's let's do it. Let's do this. And then, you know, then the night before, two nights before, people start calling me and saying, you know, you're going to get arrested. The, the police are going to come. You know, they've already told them this. They've already told they were going to call your firms. They're going to withdraw the offers. So you start panicking a little bit. So, um, you know, we were very strategic and we said, wait a minute, this is not just about students of color. This is not about women of color. This is about diversity and this is about fairness. So we recruited people like John F. Kennedy Jr., who mm-hmm. was in my class at the time, you know, may he, may he rest in peace, who was such a, uh, such a partner with us in, in a mm-hmm. lot of our, our... So when we did the sit-in, the first person on the first step was John F. Kennedy <laughs> Jr. So everybody looked down and said, ain't nobody going to get arrested. <laughs> right. you know? And the next thing we knew, we turned around and there was like Dunkin' Donuts and coffee, you know, to us. Um, and then, you know, we got called in by the dean and they patted us on the head and they said, oh, this was like the lawyering program, right? This is like the first exercise that you did. And you know, we're really proud of you for showing real advocacy. You know, okay, knock it off, you know. Let's. <laughs> and so... One of the students in the room uh, used to be a journalist, 
she was really patronized and she just felt that was you know over the Don't top just knock it off just not like knock it off come on stop you know stop stop being kids and let's get back to school so um the next day it was on the front page of the new york times right and then it's like game on right and so at that point we knew we had the leverage and and we knew we had to deliver you know we now we had a convince the entire NYU community of our position. And some people were a little angry, saying, you know, you're making our law school look bad. You're making everybody think that everybody is, you know, is a bad person. And we're saying, no, look at the diversity numbers. Look at the lack of leadership in terms of uh, professors um, and even the, 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 the numbers of students of color that are coming in. We have made a commitment to diversity. We can't just talk about it. We can't just think about it. We got to do it. So we came up with 11-point positions of change. And I think within three years, every single point was implemented. And the dean embraced it. Mm -hmm. um, and he became a partner in this. And I, I think you were at a dinner two years ago. Now, this is like, this is about 30 years ago. Right. Uh, and at this point, you know, fast forward, you know, I'm an important person doing important things. It's not something that I have on my resume, you know, <laughs> hey, took over, help This take is, over. by the way, this is not just speaking truth to power. This is power. This is power. This is, this is power. You're, you've effectively put your position on the front page of the New York Times. This is before you could put it on Facebook. This is before you're the deputy mayor. This, this is before any of this stuff. Yeah. This is like making a change. This is this is making a change. Right. This is being able to speak to everybody, right? Mm -hmm. And so then as soon as that came into the paper, then we started getting calls from law students from all over the country. How did you do it? How can we do it at our school? It doesn't mean you have to take over the law school. You know, there are other ways. So we mm -hmm. were able to create almost like a like a blueprint for change that we were able to sell and to present to other law students sort of uh, around the country, which was great. So what ended up happening, that, that initial fear, which was probably well-placed, my, my guess is that somebody probably may have tried to get us arrested, right? Had we not immediately just put out like, oh no, we, <laughs> we, got, a few, we got a few tricks up our, our sleeves. Um, one of my professors who to this day, I just adore her, Nancy Marovitz, who's mm -hmm. still um, you know, clinical instructor extraordinaire, uh, nominated me for the Vanderbilt Medal, unbeknownst to me. Mm -hmm. And when you get the Vanderbilt Medal, or at least at the time, you don't know. So you're sitting there at graduation, and myself and two other student leaders, Malika Dutt and Phoebe Yang, were also called up Aww. to be presented the Vanderbilt Medal, right? This is in, in Madison Square Garden in front of thousands of people. At convocation. At convocation. And... We got a standing ovation, and we just—I just stood there saying, "I mean, you don't do it for the glory, and you don't do it for the Vanderbilt Medal." But I said, "This is, this feels right, you know. This feels right." I took a position. We stuck to our guns. We took a risk. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt that we took a big risk. Um, there was nothing in it for me, you know, financially. It's not something that mm -hmm. I ever put on my resume or I, or I brag about. But it is something that taught me right then and there. If, when people say, what is the most powerful lesson that you learned about advocacy? That was it. And I, we were doing it at the highest levels, right? Dean of the law school who ends up becoming... President, president of the university. President university and, and good friend. So mm -hmm. throughout the years, you know, whenever um, I needed something or, or he needed something with the city, you know, we were always in, in, in contact and, and collaborators. He knew you could make a difference. He knew I could make a difference, and I always knew I could count on him to do the right thing mm -hmm. because we ended up really sitting down as a group and, and coming up with something that changed the fabric 
of NYU at the time. And, and we were able to speak not just directly to him. He put us right in the room with the faculty. He says, okay, hot shots. Um, you're going to have to make a presentation to the faculty. And no student group has ever... That was legendary. Yeah. Made Your presentation. It. Right. And, and some professors were mad. They were pissed mm-hmm. off. They were like, holy moly, I'm getting calls from my colleagues in other parts of the country, and they think we're, you know, we're walk- one, I remember one person, they think we're walking around with hoods around here. I said, well, that's not, that's certainly a, not a perception. There's nothing in that article that lends that perception, and we'll be happy to explain and walk them through what's been happening on campus that we want changed. And, and at that presentation, we got a standing ovation from the faculty of NYU Law. I mean, who, who what faculty stands up and claps for anything? Um, much less a bunch of students. Much less a bunch of a bunch of students, who who interestingly enough all went on to become um, sort of very successful professionals. Very successful professionals, and they're all right. And I have to say that I think one of the reasons we were able to do that, a become very successful, the integrity in which NYU challenged us back, right? Mm-hmm. And I and with a lot of integrity and worked with us from the very beginning. We don't really know what you're talking about, but it was never it was never like, you know, talk to the hand. And I say that because I want to just share sort of one of the other um, students who saw this example and this student went to Brooklyn Law School mm. and did something very similar and gave a presentation to the alumni. The next week, that dean sent a letter to every single person who was in that presentation challenging the veracity of what that student said publicly Mm. and said, this is not true. How could the student stand up and say this? We're a great school, blah, 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 blah. And that student came back and said, can you believe, and his hands trembling, Mm -hmm. and named the student by name. And this student happened to be my husband. And he said, oh my God, look how NYU treated you guys and <laughs> you guys put this stuff out there publicly and look what happened in Brooklyn he said you're very lucky that you go to NYU so I always I always have to remember that in terms of you know what they were able to to change us um, and what they created in us in the first instance as as advocates um, advocates with integrity and I think they knew all along that you know no hidden agenda you know, there wasn't a movie deal. We weren't looking to have a, you know, our own our own show on cable. It was just doing doing the right thing for right things' sake. There's a great um, gift in not um, shoving something under the rug. They say that when you're even raising kids, um, a great lesson in parenting: if you're going to raise critical thinkers, the first um, the first person that your little critical thinkers are going to criticize is their parents. And I think that's the case we see over and over with our crop of law students. The first people that they're going to criticize is very likely going to be the administration, is going to be the institution. And bless you for raising it um, and for tackling it. That is how culture gets changed. And we live in a culture that needs to be changed in a lot of different ways. So you've continued that um, tradition. I've, I've continued to the tradition and then understand that, you know, you have to turn this around. I then, you know, fast forward 25 years later, I'm the deputy mayor of the city of New York. Right. People are boycotting me. People are standing up and doing things against me right. or the city or the mayor or writing letters to the editor or doing things that are doing the same. So I, I become, in effect, John Sexton 
And I always, you know, sometimes, oh, how dare they? Uh, you know, you would go out, Carol, don't go out for lunch today. Why? They're boycotting. They're going to pick at you. They, they're they're <laughs> going to pick at you. They're boycotting this new executive order. They blah, 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 blah. I said, oh, no. No, I went out. I, I would go out. Of course, I'm going to go out to lunch. Right. And, I'm gonna, and I would say and let them know that if, like, if they'd like to come in and speak, I'm happy to do so. And, you know, another another example when when we came into office, there was there was um, the the disability rights community was really up in arms with some policies from the former administration, um, which we had carried over, and they were going to have some type of protest, and they were really upset because we had not filled the position of of commissioner, and so I said, well, instead of having a pro- sounds like a lot of work, would they like to have a meeting at City Hall and let us know and speak to me directly? And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, let me know what the issues are. And so they went on and on and on and on talking about, well, there's no commission, there's no commission, there's no commissioner. And, and, and the kind of people that you've had in this in that position were just, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's okay, you know, hey, you know, I'm on my training wheels here. Do you have any resumes for me? And they were in shock. I said, resumes? Well, the only people we would know are, are like advocates. So well, that, that, that sounds like a good place to start in terms of an expert. And um, and we ended up hiring the first uh, commissioner. <laughs> you want a commissioner? Let's get you one. Let's get you one. Um, Matthew Sapolin, who, God bless his soul, is no longer with us, but he was one of the most trusted advocates in the disability oh. community. And we, we interviewed him, and we all said, this is our, this is our new this is the new head of the mayor's office with people with disabilities. This is it. You know, cancel all the other interviews. Um, Actually, part of power is speaking truth to power and becoming a change maker in the sense of bucking the odds and fiercely battling to make a change. And yet still then the other flip the coin and being able to listen then when someone's making a change or requesting change of you when you're in the position of power. So that is a beautiful kind of full spectrum perspective on power and allowing yourself to be in the position of power and being open to making the changes, especially in this particular political climate. I think, I, I think we really do need to be very tuned into that. Otherwise, it, it's just we're just going to perpetuate the divisiveness. I think you're right. I think you're, but it's tough. Let me tell you, when you... And you open up that paper, you see your name, you're like, oh, why did they have this book? Did they have to use that picture? Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny, so John Sexton, to this day, I think he remembers, it was an awful picture that the New York Times used of him. He had, they had him, his head was down, and he looked like he was like, like he had a migraine. You know, it was mm-hmm. just like a really, I don't know, I just remember being like, yikes, but of course, you know, we were like 22, 20, ha, ha, ha. Right. So then when they do it to you, it's like, Oh, that wasn't very nice. They could have used a bunch of I remember he called you out a couple of years ago at a dinner. Um, and I think you were deputy mayor at the time. And here you were in this very fancy position of power. And he reminded you publicly. I was like, remember when you were a kid? You were just a law student. That was just a couple of years ago, right? That was like two. That was like, th- yeah, that was three and a half years ago, I think. And he said, is Carol Robles Roman here? And I think it was just when he had just stepped down. And uh, he goes, stand up. Why why am I standing up in front of 500 people at this very fancy dinner? And he went and he told, now mind you, this was 1989. He told the whole story from beginning to end. 
extemporaneously of course in front of 500 people and i'm sitting there thinking oh no i'm not sure what the punchline is going to be because we all learn from those experiences we all learn that's how change gets made that's how we learn to take our power that is really that is a story of power that's the trajectory of power and it's obviously influenced your career in lots of different ways um you've mentioned also i think this is really not such a complicated segue because you use the expression gender justice warrior and i think this is an area especially we're in we're in the middle of at the point of this recording we're in the middle of this harvey weinstein um scandal and we're in the middle of those kinds of conversations who are gender justice warriors and what are their personal power principles can you talk a little bit about those yeah so i i love to speak to young people i love to speak to old people i love to speak to everybody about about gender justice warriors especially since i took the position leading a, a woman's civil rights organization the last four years because people will come to me with things and they'll say oh, you know, do you know this is happening over here or that's happening over there? And they're looking for somebody else to hear the problem and to take on the persona of sort of warrior to then fix it. And so I start sort of teaching them and I go, oh, you're in a hospital and they're not hiring women? Um, what hospital is it? And who's the chairman of the board? And, and so I say, oh, well, I'm only a doctor or I'm only a... So everybody initially only sees themselves, oh, well, I'm just a nurse or I'm just a you're somebody within an institution or you're working in a candy store, whatever you are, wherever you are, you have power to effectuate change. And so that's obviously, right, little, little nobody Carol Robles from NYU Law School, you know, was able to effectuate real powerful change. I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a budget. I didn't have a social media campaign, you know, but I was on the side of right. And so I try to bring that into everything and so I try to teach people say wait a minute you got to take risks right you got to be ready for change right these are all power principles you have to find a mentor an advocate a partner right we wouldn't have been able to do all those things at NYU had we not had those had John F. Kennedy not been sitting on that first step that first day (laughs) not everybody has him in their class not everybody has them in their class but when you put on your creativity hats you got somebody in that class right right some powerful person's kid should be sitting okay go ahead go arrest her and then you arrest (laughs) us right afterwards right or just power in numbers just power in numbers Mm -hmm. so that's so that's number one and just it could be everybody and so when people listen to it and then i give i give a lot of sort of like real life examples i use my family a lot they're not Mm -hmm. too happy about that whenever i do especially when they're in the audience my husband when he became a um you know when my husband became a federal judge he told me a story he came home one day he says you're not gonna believe this i go what he goes when you, he goes, I just found out that you become everybody's favorite person when you become a federal judge and everyone's writing you love letters, but the people who write you the most love letters are deans of law schools. Good judge. Mm-hmm. Lots of kisses. And then they give you a pack of, these are the, my two top students and we'd love if you would interview them for a clerkship. He said, I have been looking at all the packets and all the love letters I've gotten from all the deans of the law schools. First of all, most of the deans are men. Um, number one, he goes, I never realized that. He says, number two, I never, I have not gotten one female resume. And I was like, oh, wow, bummer. And so he doesn't mention it again. A year later, a year later, he says, oh, yeah, I got all, I got all these women. I got, I got a great divert. And of course, one of them had to have been from NYU. Just, just no, saying, just saying. It, just, just saying that kind of just happened. 
Um, he got a great, I said, well, how the heck did you do that if, you know, the, the, the numbers were so skewed? He goes, oh, I didn't tell you what I did? I go, no. He called, he said, just about every dean, and he said, dean, I just want to let you know that uh, I'm not hiring anybody from your universe, from your from your law school for three years because you don't have the you don't have the, the sense of self that you have to send a judge diverse resumes. Not just me. I'm just hoping that this call is going to impress upon you that when you send resumes, that they have to be women, they have to be men, they have to be black, wow. they have to be Latino. You can't just send, you know, Phil and Bob. And I said, oh, judge, you can't do that, you can't do that. And he says, no, I put them all on a naughty list. And he said, and then I reached out to people, to deans that I did know, people of goodwill, and I asked them for resumes. And he had met, I, I think, I think um, mm -hmm. our dean somewhere. Um, so NYU was on the, was not on the Lonnie list. So I will I will mention that as well. Well, we have to give a special shout out to my colleague uh, Michelle Sharandi, who really really pays attention to right. is issues of diversity. Right. And so and so here's a this is a man. He's a judge. He's not you know anybody sort of. I mean, I guess he has power. But he has the power to be a gender justice warrior, and so I always mm -hmm. call him out. I said, because what made you do that? I mean, I never, I mean, and I can be pretty badass when I want to, I never would have had the nerve to put a dean of a law school on a naughty list. And he's just like, a lifetime tenure, you could do a lot of things. And, and <laughs> if there's one thing that I've learned is people are not, you know, sensitive to the gender issue. And we have to be looking at that. We have to. But in most institutions, and this is the sad fact and I'm not calling anybody out because it just is what it is and I know this because I travel the country and I and I and I listen and, and I I bring some lawsuits where most institutions does not have somebody, you know, a la Judge K, a la Ginny Forrest, a la Carol Robles that have that eye and just look at look at the resumes or look at the appointments and say, hmm, does this make sense? And so that's what I call people out for. And we need the gender justice warriors who can walk into a room. You know, you don't want to set the place on fire or be, you know, pissing people off all the time. And sometimes it's subtle and sometimes it's not subtle. Um, when I was a trustee of the City University of New York, which is one of the largest urban institution systems in, in our country, and I had the, the privilege of doing that for 13, 14 years, when I sat on a search, when most of my colleagues sat on a search, we took that, you know, we're, we're, doing, we're doing the public's work. And when you're paying a search firm, you know, a lot of money to come and to give you resumes and you're looking at the resumes and you're saying, oh my God, am I gonna be the one that has to say it? Am I, and you're looking at everybody like, oh, do you like these resumes? And everybody, you know, you can tell who the people are thinking like, yikes. And, and sometimes it's not just the gender issue, it's the racial issue, right? It's like, there's no, there's very They all look dinner. the same. They all look the same. And so it's like you realize, okay, I'm going to have to be, you know, I, my husband and I, we, we call it that girl, you know, and, and we don't mean Marlo Thomas, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to be that girl. And so I, I became that girl so often in the last, I want to say, nine years where I just saw something happening. Something was just going in, in a bad direction. Um, and it's one of the reasons when I left when I left uh, city government and I said, Who, I, wanna ha I, I guess I'm going to have to start training that girls because something is happening and, and because I had the honor of working with Michael Bloomberg where many times I was in these incredible positions where you know major decisions were being made. I think people were saying things that 10 years ago they wouldn't have said. 
They were they were budget decisions. They were business decisions that were being made. Contracts that were being let out. Where you know back in the day they would say, oh, you know, let's make sure this goes through WMBE or let's make sure we 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 interview diverse businesses as well. But there was a sense, at least this was my my perception, right, being in those rooms, that something was going in 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 a bad way, and so. That's when I made the decision when I was leaving city government that I wanted to I wanted to return to my civil rights roots mm-hmm. as, a, as a civil rights litigator mm-hmm. and as an advocate, but on the gender side. And when I met with a lot of people, when I when I decided I wanted to go to Legal Momentum, they go, oh, that's so old. That's so dated. Oh, that's so yesterday, Carol. That's so retro. <laughs> and it turns out that it was actually very, very prescient. Because look at what we're doing now. It was. We're uh, still absolutely fighting for women's rights in a very, very clear, and it feels like clear and present danger. Well, I will take it even a step further because one of the reasons that drew me to Legal Momentum's work is the the, the imprimatur of violence and how they have become the subject matter experts on, on, on sexual harassment and violence and women's rights and the intersection. And I was told that that was, oh, so yesterday, that sexual harassment stuff, Carol. That stuff that everybody knows, everybody's mm-hmm. trained on that. I said, are you kidding then why are these, why are women just like whispering to each other? And and why are professional women and and non-professional women, you know, first of all, I, you, you can't tell me a problem because then I always end up, my husband says I run a pro bono practice out of my pocketbook, no matter what job I've ever had. He goes, Carol, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be. I said, well, you know, it's one more, we call the missions of mercy. So one issue that never went away, women complaining about violence and not wanting to report, and not wanting anybody arrested. And then when they would tell you about things that were happening in the workplace with employers or in an interview, and, you know, I would counsel or I would put them in touch with somebody, but there was this just paralyzing fear of not wanting to do anything, right? So there was no pro bono lawyer that I can provide them with. There was no counsel or advice or nothing. It was like like frozen. And I said, no, there's something out there. And this this notion that because we put it in a in an EEO booklet and once a year we make people sign a statement that they got sexual harassment <laughs> that training, it. that they read it, right? It's something's happening because these women are not making up these stories. And equally bad is that something is happening and there is a sense of paralysis that there's nothing that they can do or should do and a fear. And so we saw that 35 years ago and laws were changed with victims of domestic violence, police were trained, judges were trained. And so we we, we flipped that switch where victims of violence have places to go. They have resources, right? They're, They're readily available. That's the type of work that Legal Momentum has done. So my, my vision is to then create, right? So I come into this job with this vision of creating those same set of self-help tools. And I don't know what the statutory framework would be, but creating that sense of, oh, this bad thing happened. These are the rules. This is how you bring help. And so Harvey Weinstein comes and now everybody says, oh, Carol, how did you know? I said, oh, my God, because I listen to people, right? The phone rings, I pick it up, and I say hello, and I listen. 
This is not something new. This is just the the, the, the media has done a good job of, of, of putting it on the table of I'm I'm sure these are it's blowing up right now, but it's not an uncommon story. Um, I caught myself the other day saying something, and I, I heard myself say, but I don't want to get him in trouble. I don't really want to make waves. And I realized that is a very common trope for women, is that we don't want to make a ruckus. We don't want to, we don't want to make waves. And you have been a wave maker. You have been a change maker. I always like to end the conversations with this. When I think back to the beginning of your law school life, what advice would you give your 1L self looking back? You know, the, the advice that I would give my 1L self is similar to the advice that I give to women, to men. My trajectory, right, my career trajectory has been someone, I'm a lawyer, I've been a lawyer for 30 plus years NYU put this advocate gene in me. It wasn't there before. I was going to be a corporate lawyer. I was going to be a bankruptcy lawyer. I was going to make so much money. I was at an event. I don't know if you remember this because my daughter reminds me of this at least once once a month. You and I were speaking at, a, at an event, and I was telling you how grateful I am to NYU that when I win the lottery, and I still hope that it is going to happen, or I come into that really big bucks position, I'm going to make whatever those half, half of it is going to go to NYU Law School because that is the level of um, I feel that I, I need to pay back. Of course, my daughter's like, that's my legacy. That's my money. That's my inheritance. That's my inheritance. So so that's, that's you know, oh, wow, this is Carol. But my 1L self was actually somebody who went to law school in the midst of very serious health challenges. I actually was very sick, and I had to defer for a year thinking, oh, I'm going to be fine. And I actually wasn't. So I actually um, was taking um, a series of, of, of medications. And I only share this now because I hope there are 1Ls listening to me. So I went to law school so disabled. I was a disabled student. And nobody knew. The only person who knew was my husband because at that point I get the letter from NYU saying, you got to go. You have to, we've deferred and you got to go. And so he says, just go. What's the worst that can happen? You know, we're all used to being sort of straight A students. And I said, well, I, I have to take this medicine. It makes me very tired. I was very lethargic in the middle of the day. I have to take like a two hour nap. And so, and I was, I couldn't afford to live in the dorms. So he, we worked out this whole thing that I would take the naps in the library. I didn't tell a soul, Jeannie. Mm. I didn't tell a dean. I didn't tell a professor. Nobody. It's a different kind of power, uh, Carol. There's nothing in my mind's eye today, looking back 30 years ago, I know, because every professor that I had, and I don't have one horror story to tell about one, I know that if I would have gone to Professor Hogan, or if I would have gone to the dean, or if I would have spoken to somebody, there would have been help available. They would have figured something out for me. They would have given. They would have given. They would have encouraged me to take advantage of the TA. There would have been help. So I tell one L's. I tell the two L's. I tell the three L's. And now that I'm a civil rights lawyer and I am an expert on on issues regarding people with disabilities, when you need help, when something's wrong. You need to ask. Yeah. And and there's oh, I mean you were the you were the vice dean. You how many of those students came to you and you helped craft a solution, right? Or or give them different things to consider. And when, yeah, when you so the notion I think it's really great advice that when you when you get to the end of your rope, reach out and someone will be there for you. Don't stand there at the end of your rope and just uh, be puzzled over what to do next, but when you get to the end of the rope, there will be actually be somebody reach out. And it happens 
to women who are being abused. Mm-hmm. It happens to girls who are getting hit by their boyfriends, mm-hmm. which we're seeing so much more. And there is this paralysis. Mm-hmm. We don't want folks to know that they're not perfect or that their partner is perfect. There is somebody there who can help you. And so I think of it in retrospect and I, well, I mean, I guess it made me a, a stronger person and certainly I came out as a 2L swinging, but I think it would have made more sense had I admitted that I was a disabled student and that I needed uh, help, but I, but I didn't. So. And sometimes there's another version of power and that is just sharing your story with someone else. And there is a great deal, I will say this as a psychologist, there's a great deal of strength to be gained from just sharing a conversation and networking and having one of the whole purposes of this podcast is to actually render support through listening to the stories of other women. And that is in itself power. Absolutely. And sort of the upshot for me is one of the um, sort of legal areas of expertise, one of the areas where I used to perform many missions of mercy when I was with the city of New York was it with the special education uh, process and that whole horrible uh, myriad of, of it's the intersection of federal law and state law and city law so um, my staff ended up whether they wanted to or not becoming mini experts so when we would get those you know end of their rope calls because it takes a lot to make that call mm-hmm. I would say call the governor's office call the special ed office, call the Department of Education, and let's just make sure they're on the right track. I've always had a special sort of place in my heart for for the disabled student, and and the disabled student needs to know, needs to know that there's, there's, well now, with the American with Disabilities Act, um, we have much greater uh, awareness and, and understanding. Carol, thank you for being here today and for talking with us. This has been incredible. It's been so much fun. I feel like we've had a little blast from the past. And um, I also feel a little juiced up. I think we we all need a little uh, moment of power. Thank you. I think think so, too. I think so, too. I think we have it. And we just have to just just, uh, do it. Plug in. Yay. It's a deal. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law, and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash womensleadership. leadership.